as I was pre-reading this scripture, I thought, oh, Jonathan Sanderson, where are you? <laughs> All right. This is uh, Revelation chapter 6. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given, they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Well, we're in it now. <laughs> oh man. Thank you so much, Sandy. There is more than one way to tell the truth. There is more than one way to tell the truth. And here's what I mean, and this will make sense later. On April 26, 1937, during the Spanish Civil War, at the request of Spanish nationalist forces, Nazi Germany bombed the northern Spanish city, the Basque town of Guernica. 
Now, there is more than one way to recount the horrors of that moment. Most of us in like an academic or school setting, the way that we would recount that or learn about that event is through a history book. We would read a textbook. We would see uh, journalistic photographs. We would maybe watch a documentary that detailed the events of that day, the political machinations of that day, that told us who were the lead figures, who were the generals, which forces were at work in which moment. We would understand the details, the general understanding of a day. And that kind of truth-telling is important. It's necessary to know the details, the exact events and happenings of a historic moment. But sometimes when you read a textbook, I don't know if you've ever been here, or you watch a documentary, it can feel like it's missing something. Like it's missing something that is maybe deeper under the surface of the events that are being detailed. Like there's some feeling or experience or hurt or emotion or maybe even color that runs underneath the surface that is also true of that event. And following the bombing of Guernica, Pablo Picasso painted maybe the most famous anti-war painting of all times, known as Guernica. And this is maybe one of the most famous paintings of Pablo Picasso, but also one of the most famous anti-war paintings of all time. And it is full of strange images, strange symbols, chaotic movements and chaotic gestures. And you could get very lost if you were going to try to look at this painting and find all of the direct kind of historical reference to the battle and bombing of Guernica, you would look at some moments and be like, is that a plane? Is that a general? Is that a historical figure? Is that an exact representation of someone? And Pablo Picasso was actually asked about that, and he said, no. No, instead, what this painting communicates is something under the surface, some maybe deeper, more visceral kind of truth that simply a historical recounting struggles to tell. It tells the feelings of war. The suffering of being bombed, the damages that were done to it. It's full of symbols that evoke something. For example, on this person's hand, in one he has a broken sword and out of it grows a flower. And on the other he has a stigmata, which is an ancient symbol for Christian martyrdom. It's meant to evoke something in us about the injustice of this moment. Or uh, behind the bull there is a dove that is screaming. Maybe that's an image of peace or it's an image of the spirit. But was there a dove that was actually screaming in that moment? Well, I don't know, but that's not really the point of the painting. Instead, it's meant to tell a story underneath the historical facts of a moment. To give us a full range of this experience. Now, the reason I say this, and the reason I reference this painting, is that we are entering a portion of Revelation that reads far more like Guernica than it does like a historic recounting of past events. Revelation 6 through 17 especially, but even 19, is full of strange images, symbols, and descriptions. And we could very quickly get totally lost in them, in the same kind of way that we would get lost in these images if we tried to find the direct historical reference for each and every one of them. Revelation is not a textbook. 
Instead, it's prophecy. And prophecy is not about predicting exact moments. Instead, it's about speaking truth in a different kind of way. Like a painting or a work of art, which is often how the Old Testament prophets did communicate, Revelation is not trying to provide a historical report. Instead, it is trying to wake us up to something. Like this piece of art, it challenges our normal, our sensibilities, the way that we think the world works. It challenges our expectations about reality, and it unveils something. That's what the Greek word apocalypsis actually means, not destruction. It means unveiling. Like to pull back the curtain and to see clearly for the very first time. And in the same kind of way that a painting pulls back the curtain to show us something about war that maybe a historical report cannot, the book of Revelation pulls back the curtain to see below the surface sort of shows us the world the way that God sees it. Challenging the misnomers or normal that we bring to it. And that is especially true of what is happening today in Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6 is maybe one of the most famous uh, portions of Revelation because we get this image of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Here is a, a different painting, a very famous painting by a Russian artist of the four horsemen depicted. And this image comes at kind of a strange moment, if you remember the context so far. In Revelation 5, Jesus has just received the scroll. And we said that the scroll is God's plan to rescue the world. It's a symbol for God unfolding some new story in the world around us. And all of the elders and all of the creatures of the world are begging someone to open the scroll, rescue the world. And they're saying, who is worthy to do it? And they say, oh, the lamb. The lamb is worthy because he was slaughtered to take the scroll and rescue the world. So that image has just happened. And as that image has come, the lamb takes the scroll, which is sealed by these like seven, maybe wax seals that stop it from being opened. And as the lamb begins to open, which is supposed to be the hope of the world, these strange, terrifying horsemen begin to arrive. As Jesus opens the very first of the he opens four seals that bring four horsemen. And the first one you see depicted here. The first one is depicted as a king on a white horse who holds a bow, and the text says goes from conquering and conquest, or some translations say victory to victory. The second horseman rides a red horse with a sword and wages war on the land. The third is a rider on a black horse carrying scales, and sometimes is referred to as famine or pestilence. And I think maybe the better translation, just for the sake of our own context, would be scarcity. The words that are shouted as this horseman comes in are of a marketplace and exorbitant prices for goods that should never have cost that much. So scarcity. And finally, the fourth is the pale green horse whose rider is death. And behind them, different translations will say the grave or Hades or hell comes behind them. These images are so intense. 
There's like so much art if you look it up. And I don't know that there's anything from the book of Revelation that has so made it into like our cultural zeitgeist. Like you see it in movies. Every time I was reading this passage, I don't know if this movie is too old, but I just kept thinking of that moment in Tombstone where Wyatt Earp yells, tell him I'm coming and hell's coming with me. Like that's from this moment. Right? There's so few things that have made it into our zeitgeist in the same kind of way. And yet it seems so opposite the image of the lamb who was slaughtered and receives the throne because he was slaughtered. Like, it feels so different than those images. And so it leads us to a couple of questions. Who are these figures? Where do they come from, and what are they doing in the world? And so we begin with just the first horseman, the rider on the white horse. I think if we can answer this horseman, we'll actually begin to understand every other one in this text. Some people, some scholars have suggested that this very first horseman is the person of Jesus, actually. And there's some uh, pretty good reasons for that conviction. In Revelation 19, 11, a much later passage, we see Jesus depicted as riding a white horse. Both of these figures are crowned as kings. Both are believed to be victorious. So there are some possibilities. There's some parts of this image that do kind of look like Jesus, just in the way that it's been depicted here. But I don't think that this is Jesus. I think for a couple of reasons. One, in that same passage in 1911, Jesus is depicted as wearing many crowns, not just one crown king of all things, not just king of one thing. Second, Jesus does not wield a bow. Nowhere in the book of Revelation is that an image of Jesus. Instead, Jesus wields a sword that comes from his mouth that is his word. And most importantly, Jesus does not, at least as far as I understand Jesus, usher into the world death and scarcity and hell. If every image in the Bible, if every image of God that we hold has to be compared to Jesus on the cross, then I don't know that this one squares up with Jesus. I don't think this is Jesus. So if it is not Jesus, who is this figure? Just take a second to reflect on it. Who is this figure if it's not Jesus? Who are any of these figures if they're not the person of Jesus? Well, who wears a crown and conquers other nations? Who has a tendency to destroy peace with war? Who has a tendency to commodify the world and sell it for a price? And who, ultimately, in our theology, has ushered hell into the world? You could say the Satan, like the spiritual forces of darkness that the book of Revelations talks about, but I actually don't think that it's that either because there's different images and metaphors for spiritual forces in the book of Revelation. Beasts and dragons. So if it's not Jesus, and if it's not the Satan or spiritual forces of darkness, who would this figure be? It's us. Oh, it's us. New Testament scholar N.T. Wright says it this way, what happens when the seals are opened is that the forces of human conquest and oppression are allowed to do their worst. Human history records that again and again, war, famine, and a thousand other things have carried people off before their time. 
these are the four basic ills which humans inflict on one another. The story of human history is the story of humans unleashing hell on earth. These four horsemen are not judgments from some supernatural playing field. No, it is us. And the book of Revelations unveils them and shows them for what they really are, destructive and terrible forces of darkness. But that's the deeper story. I think if we were to look on the surface, what we would see is these are the places that we regularly trust. These are things that we regularly engage in, things we regularly hope in. These are the forces of power and control and comfort and security and money. It's all the things that we have a tendency to idolize over and above Jesus, which is why I actually think this first figure looks like Jesus. It's not Jesus. It is an imposter of Jesus. It's the things that we are convinced have authority. It's the things that we are convinced will save us. It's the things that we tend to worship again and again instead of trusting in Jesus. It is our false hopes, our false authorities, and our empty power. The story is fascinating in this moment, Revelation 6, but we kind of tell this story a lot in the biblical narrative. It reminds me, in fact, of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, you have this moment, which is kind of a weird image. You have Adam and Eve in the garden. They choose the fruit, right? Famous moment. And sometimes it's told as a story of like maybe a vindictive God, but it's an image like this one of people choosing their own will over and against the will of God. And then what happens if you remember the story following Genesis chapter 3? Well, Genesis chapter 3 happens, and the next story is Cain and Abel, where violence and scarcity and death have entered the world. Oh, fascinating. And what comes next is Genesis chapter 5, where we get a genealogy of the world, and right in the middle of it, it's fascinating. You get a figure who brags about murder and brags about conquering people. And it continues to unfold until you get to Genesis chapter 11 and the fall of Babel, where people brag about making slaves of one another to build a tower that will unite them. That story from Genesis 3 to Genesis 11 feels the same as this story in Genesis chapter 6. It is an image of the way in which humans reject God for their own way. And what happens when we reject God for our own way is that we unleash our own way into the world. We choose to build a world without God, and we live in the world that we have built. This is what comes next in the passage of Revelations in verse 9 and 10. It says, Jesus has opened these first seals, we've seen the horses, and then he opens the fifth seal. And the writer of this, John, says, I saw under the altar those who had been slaughtered on account of the word of God and the witness they had given. They cried out with a loud voice, Holy and true master, how long will you wait before you pass judgment? How long before you require justice for our blood, which was shed by those who live on earth? 
As the next seal is broken, what we see is the reality of humans choosing their own way, their own rule, their own decisions. They unleash suffering on earth. They unleash that fourth horse, hell in the grave. And so it leads the people in this text to say, how long before you do something, God? How long before you, uh, this is the common English Bible, it says, require justice. I really like that phrase. How long before you require justice? Before you put things right? That's how justice is defined in the biblical narrative. It is to make something whole, to make something right. How long before you will write this thing? As our friend Josh Butler says, how long before you will get the hell out of earth? <laughs> you think about that one for a second. And in verse 11, we get our answer to that question. But it is very confusing and maybe a little frustrating. This is a famously difficult passage to translate. Some describe it as the finished work of Christians, that, that evil will continue until Christians are finished. Other passages will emphasize the death of Christians in this passage. And the language that's used here in verse 11 is, how long before you require justice? And the answer is, until it is finished. Until it is finished. So what is it that needs to be finished? Is it something that we do? Is it something that God does? Is it something that evil does? What must be finished? Could be all of those. This is what the scholar N.T. Wright again says. What has to happen, it seems, is for evil to do its worst. To reach its height. How is that justice? How is that the justice that God requires? Like, how is that good news at all? That evil must do its worst? That it must reach its height? That it must boil over? How is that good news of any kind? Well, I think it speaks to the way in which Jesus works versus the way that we tend to work. That God tends to handle things in the universe, I don't even know this, different than we do. And this moment speaks to how differently God tends to handle evil and suffering and the deepest problems, the deepest problems of our world. And here's what I mean by that. There's a few things that we have to say. First, is that we believe Jesus is on a mission to rescue the world. But that's kind of the story of the Bible post-Genesis chapter 3. Humans choose their own way. We unleash hell on the earth. And Jesus is interested in answering the question, how do we get hell out of earth? That's the thing that Jesus is committed to, rescuing the world, rescuing you and I. But here's the second thing that we have to remember. You and I are the horsemen. So that presents a problem. How do you rescue the villain? How do you rescue the people who do so much damage and destruction? At the end of the day, the story of the Bible is God trying to rescue us. 
that we are often the obstacle to God's rescue mission. Now, we're not the only objects of suffering or evil in the world. The Bible has a very robust understanding of evil. You and I can participate in evil. We build systems and institutions that are evil, and there's spiritual forces of darkness at work in the world. And all of those things need to be dealt with, but the problem is that we're in it. We're like, we live in that world. The Bible likes to use the description of Babylon as a kingdom that's opposed to God's kingdom, and we live in Babylon. So how do you deal with Babylon when people live in it? How do you get the people out? That's what makes it a complicated question. Jesus is committed to rescuing the world, but the world is filled with us. So how does Until It Is Finished deal with this moment? Well, think about it like the story of the prodigal son in some ways. The story in Scripture is that you and I, the horsemen of this story, humans, we have demanded our independence from God. Like the prodigal son, we have demanded our inheritance. We've gone to the Father and said, give us everything that is yours and let us take it and leave you. And how does the Father respond to that moment? He lets us. The father in the story of the prodigal son gives to the son the thing that the son asks for and lets him go on his way. In Genesis chapter 3, humans demand the world and all that God has built. And how does God respond? He lets them have it. God gives them the thing that they ask for. God gives the prodigal son the thing that he asks for. But then we live in the world that we chose. Genesis 3 begins to then record the moments of violence and the story of the prodigal son. The son spins his wealth until it's gone. Until the son finds himself poor and naked and alone. And in Revelation 6, we have a similar moment. In verse 12, we get this really big image. It says, John looked, and as Jesus opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as funeral clothing, and the entire moon turned red as blood. The stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its fruit when shaken by a strong wind. The sky disappeared like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was moved from its place. I think this is a moment like Guernica, where you have these visceral images that are communicating something, because then here is the key that shows us what's happening. It says in verse 15, Then the kings of the earth, the officials and the generals, the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves in the rocks of the mountains. It's like in this moment, the world in which these people live and the world that they have built is collapsing in on them. The security, the comfort, the false hope, the structures of power and leadership and all of the things that they have put their identity in, their value in, all of the idols that they have worshipped, it's like it is now collapsing in around them. And they are living in the destruction of the world that they have made. The world that they built is collapsing in around them. In this sense, judgment is a confrontation with themselves and the world that they have made, that they have to deal with the thing they've done. As Kendrick Lamar says, 
Blessed are the bullies. So one day they'll have to stand up to themselves. I think until it is finished means this. It means until we have reached the end of ourselves. That as the world begins to collapse around us, that as the consequences of the decisions that we have made play out in full, as the thing that we have built is revealed, we might just begin to reach the end of ourselves. And then God moves. Until it is finished, until we reach the end of ourselves, until our confidence in false hope wavers enough for us to see clearly. And then to see what? Well, verse 16. Those people who are hiding in the mountains, they say, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who is seated on the throne, from the Lamb's wrath. It's such a weird moment. Their thing, the world is collapsing in around them. Mountains are falling. The world that they have built, the structures of power that they have built, they're all coming down. And then the thing that they say they are afraid of most is seeing the face of a lamb. How strange. And it is terrifying and yet beautiful news. That at the end of ourselves, when our confidence and our false hopes have wavered enough that the thing we would see is the Lamb. How beautiful, and yet, how terrifying. That the thing that we would be confronted with is that kind of God. On the cross, Jesus confronts our horsemen. He takes the very worst that we can throw, our power, our authority, our violence, our comfort, our fear, our self-absorption, our sense of control, our idols, all of it. And he absorbs every iota of it. And now here he stands, the lamb who is slain, who is opening the seals that rescue the world. It's like this moment where Jesus unmasks the powers that we have so long hoped in, the strength that we have so long established, the kingdoms that we have so built. It's like he takes all of it, the very most that we can throw at it, ends it all and says, is that it? This is what you have to offer? That's your hope. And that is a terrifying thing to experience because in that moment we see the emptiness of our best efforts. The four horsemen are revealed to be, well, nothing as terrifying as we thought they were. But it is also such beautiful news because you see the one who is unaffected and who unmasks the powers of the world around us, who unmasks the grave, who unmasks death, who unmasks scarcity by laying a table of abundance before us, and who unmasks the kings and powers of the world around us by conquering through his own grave and death. He unmasks all of it, stands before us, and offers us a home. 
See, Jesus is interested in rescuing the world. The problem is that we live in the world, and so Jesus is committed to rescuing us. To getting us to the place that we see and know the truth about ourselves and about him. To know the truth about our own empty hopes and empty kingdoms so that we might trust in a new king and a new kingdom. I think that's what it means by the wrath of the lamb. Yes, the lamb has wrath. And he aims it towards the horsemen and the things that destroy us and the things that would eat us alive and the things that would ruin his kingdom and the things that would keep us from being rescued. That's the best part maybe of this whole passage is that Jesus is so committed to the rescue of the world, but he is committed to it the way the lamb does rescue which never sees the ends justifying the means. It's the Lamb's wrath, which is so different than ours. It's the one that absorbs evil, unmasks it, and destroys it so that we could see the world we've built and know that in him, we are being offered another one. So, Missio, I think the question for us is the same question it is for those who received this book and this letter as they were navigating life as Christians in the first century. Simply this, where do we hope? What do we hope in? Where do we place our confidence and our sense of security? What kingdoms do we invest in? What world do we want to live in? Ours? Or the Lamb's? Missy, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you sit on the throne. But not as the image of the four horsemen, but as the lamb who was slain. That you have all power and all authority, but you do it differently than we do. You're committed to our rescue and our restoration, and yet also committed to the end of evil. God, today, as we just hear this story, as we sing your songs, and as we gather at the table, would you confront us again with that image of you, the lamb who was slain, who has all power and all authority, as paradoxical and as strange and as hard as it is for us to get our mind around that it is the hope of the world, the terrifying, beautiful news, the wrath of the lamb. God, we respond to that today. Would we leave the caves that are collapsing all around us and come to you? To know you as king. In your name we pray. Amen. Missy, I invite you to continue worshiping with us. The song, there's communion on the table. It's sealed in elements to keep you safe. You can gather at the table or you can take an element and you can go back to your seat and pray. And please continue to sing and worship with us.